You're listening to the Tri-State Community Church Podcast, a ministry of the Associate Reformed Presbyterian Church located in the greater Pittsburgh metropolitan area. For more information, including service times, please visit us at facebook.com forward slash Tri-State Reformed Church. Chapter 5, verse 16. Once found their place. Let's hear the word of the Lord. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you're led by the Spirit, you're not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we look to you this morning, and in looking to you, Father, we we desire to confess that if we're to profit from this study and profit from your word, we require, Father, that you teach us that you lead our hearts, that, Father, you open them to understand, and that, Father, you also work in our, our will, that we would will to align our hearts with these things, Father, that we would just not gain an understanding for the sake of theological curiosity, but that we would gain understanding only so that we can align ourselves with the truth set forth here and align ourselves with the wonderful uh, principles that are here, Father. You know, these, true, these, these words are extraordinary, and Father, we pray that, Lord, you'd be pleased to uh, bless us, O oh, Father, with them. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, um, just a matter of review, last week, or I would say a couple of weeks ago, backing up to verse 13, we were talking about freedom, and I think it's important for us to back up there And uh, just take a few moments. Um, You know, when we were talking about freedom, I think it was two weeks ago, the burden that I had that particular morning was we're not free to live however we want. We're not free to do whatever we want. The freedom that Paul is talking about here as he writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit is freedom to become like Jesus. That's the freedom that, that Paul is talking about. And we, we should understand that to be freedom because prior to the work that God does on our hearts, we're simply not free to do that. Um, we, you know, talk to people, go out throughout the community. You don't need me to tell you. As you talk to people about Jesus, you know, me and the girls were just talking about this uh, last night, that, you know, without God working in our hearts, we're indifferent to God. What's that mean? That means we don't really think about God. We, we go through our lives not really giving God a lot of thought. Um, we're just into our own thing, and, and that's it. But the wonders of God's grace is He begins to work in our lives. He begins to open up our hearts. He begins to open us up so that we begin to see a little bit of His beauty, and then everything changes. Uh, and where freedom is really found is when our hearts begin to change so that we look to God, so that God begins to get a hold of our hearts, and now he, he gives us the privilege and the freedom to become like Jesus. You know, we're not interested in becoming like Jesus. We might admire Jesus in our sin, but we're not necessarily interested in becoming like him until this work is done in our hearts. But the wonderful thing about this work that's being done in our hearts is it sets us free. Now, what does that look like? I think as we go further, we're going to see more and more of what this freedom looks like. And Paul says in verse 13, he says, do not use this freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. Now, what does he mean by that? By flesh, of course, what he means is is the desires of our fallenness, the desires of our our sinfulness, if you will. Uh, He says, do not use your freedom. He's speaking to the church. He's speaking to people who have been set free to become like Jesus. And he's telling them and telling us through them, do not use that freedom for opportunities 
uh, for the flesh. Now, what opportunities might he be thinking of? I think verse 15 answers that question. He says, if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you're not consumed by one another. Okay, obviously, there's backbiting and devouring going on in the church of Galatia. And there's an important principle that I brought up a couple weeks ago, is that when we, the the folks in Galatia have lost their gospel focus. That's why Paul's writing to the Galatians. And the principle here is, when we lose our gospel focus, our relationship with our brothers and sisters in the faith will decay. That's a spiritual principle that you can take to the bank. If we lose our gospel focus, our love for one another will begin to decay. Now, that's the bad news. The good news is we're redirected back into a gospel focus. Our love for one another will grow. We really will pray that it doesn't rain Friday so that we can go to the bonfire and enjoy the company of one another um, if we're focused on the gospel. We'll grow in that relationship. Um, And Paul says in verse 14, for the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And what's interesting, if you back up to the very last part of verse 13, Paul has said that through love, we're to serve one another. And what's interesting about that is we really go from one form of slavery or servanthood, if you will, to another form. Well, someone will say, what are you talking about? Well, we go from being enslaved to ourselves and enslaved to the patterns of this world, if you will, so that we can be set free to be like Jesus. We could put it another way. We're, we're saved from slavery of self and, and sin and the evil one so that we can now become servants of love. And as we become servants of love, we really begin to enjoy some freedom. And I used an illustration last week that I think we should repeat now. I think it'll set us up really nicely for verse 16. And many of you probably remember it. You know, the, the, the illustration of driving to a destination. You know, you're, you, you know, we have two different scenarios. One, okay, we're driving to this destination. We want to get there, we'll say, by 3 o'clock. All right, we map out, we do our map quest, all that stuff. We leave early enough. The interstate traveling goes wonderfully. The last 50 miles of the trip is through the country. Um, everything is going good. We get out into the, get off the interstate. We're going through the country. And when you know, it's four lane. One of those four lane country roads, speed limit's 55. We're traveling 55. Uh, but then we come across, we notice the four lanes going to two lanes. Okay, we slow down to 45. That's the new speed limit. But then we see reduced speed ahead. 35. Okay, well, then we start slowing down to 35. We got one eye on the clock. We got another eye on the speedometer. We have another um, eye on getting there in time, if you will. The speed limit sign, the clock. um, Okay, 35. Well, then you see it goes down to 25. We're in one of those little communities. You're seeing storefronts. You're seeing houses close together, all of that. Okay, 25. You're looking at your speedometer. 25, speed limit. You can see how... That's kind of constricting. There's that speed limit sign. If that speed limit sign said 35, you'd be happy to pick up 10 miles an hour, wouldn't you? Because you want to get there on time. And we can see that scenario. But you obey the law. You don't go 56 when it's 55. You don't go 46 when it's 45. You don't go, you know, you, you, you obey the law. As soon as that... 25 gives way to four lane again, boom, you're back to 55 miles an hour. That was the first scenario that we painted last week. Now there's another scenario. Same destination, same time frame, same deadline, same trip. Make good time on the interstate. Um, you have to do the last 50 miles through the country. You get off the interstate. You're on you're on a pretty smooth road, four lane. You're going 55 miles an hour. But then you notice that the four lane is now moving down to two lanes. So you just kind of slow down. Just slow down on your own. Okay, it's going down to two lanes. The road isn't quite as wide. Um, Let's slow down a little bit. You start to notice that houses are becoming closer together. Driveways come out on the road. You just take it upon yourself to slow down more. Why? Well, because there's people that live here and, you know, they they could be coming out. Some of these driveways are around bends. Um, there's not a lot of visibility. Let's just, let's just slow down. We want everyone to be safe. But then you start to notice houses are becoming closer and closer together. 
So you slow down a little bit more, only to notice that now there are sidewalks on both sides of the road. There are storefronts. Some of the storefronts have really limited parking where people almost have to get on the road to get turned around to get back on the road. So you just slow down more. Uh, why? Well, because families live here, uh, because pets can run right out in front of you, because kids can run right out in front. Let's just take it easy through here. Well, why? Well, you've never met any of these people. You don't know any of these people. You've never been here before in your life. You're probably never going to be here. But wait a second. They're all image bearers of God. They're, they're in, in the sense that they're fellow human beings that live here. This is how we would want these folks to drive through our communities where our kids are playing in our yard. This is what we're going to do is we're going to drive uh, through this community this uh, safely. We want everyone to be safe. And then you discover that the houses are now becoming farther apart. Um, there's no more storefronts. It's a little bit more wide open. You can pick up the speed a little bit. And then the two lane goes back to four lane and you're kind of resuming. In the second scenario, I never did mention a speed limit sign. Why? There was no need for it. In the second scenario, you might, you probably never even came close to the speed limit. You know, when it was 45, you might have only been going 40. When it was 35, you might have only been going 30. When it was 25, perhaps you're only going 22. What slowed you down? It wasn't it wasn't that constraining law, that sign along the road that was slowing you down. No, because you're enslaved to something else, love for the community. In other words, you slowed down because even though you had the deadline, nevertheless, you slowed down because you wanted to. That's the freedom that Paul's talking about. It's not that constraint. It's not the constraint of the letter of the law. And if we read these verses again, I think it just pops out to us. For you are called to freedom, brothers and sisters. Do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another when you're driving through those towns. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. And we spent a lot of time last week talking about, okay, how are we fulfilling the whole law? I think the illustration tells us how we're fulfilling the whole law. But just as a matter of review, when we think back of the Ten Commandments, for instance, we need to understand that these commandments are all interconnected with each other. You know, we've done some work on that, haven't we? We've shown that the Tenth Commandment, you shall not covet, is connected to the first two directly. If we're coveting something, what's that mean? That means we want something in an improper way. And if we want something in an improper way, Paul tells us in Colossians 3.5 that if we covet, we're committing idolatry, doesn't he? Well, that's a violation of the second commandment. And I realize there's, I realize in theology, a lot of times we talk about the commandments. We talk about having the first table and the second table. And you'll hear that the first table pertains to our relationship with God and the second table pertains to our relationship with other. And I'm challenging that a little bit. I'm not saying that's unhelpful or we shouldn't use it, but I think we need to be careful because a lot of times we make these bifurcations and we think, well, the second table only has to do with one another and there's no linkage between it. And God, but the fact of the matter is they're all interconnected. If we break the last one, we've really broken all of them. I could, we could go right down the list. We don't have time to do that this morning, but we could easily do that and we could show the interconnectedness. Now, that's speaking in terms of the negative, if you will. Let's speak in terms of the positive. What if you keep the last commandment? If you're keeping the last commandment, you're certainly keeping the first two. If we love our neighbor as ourselves, says Leviticus 19.18, what are we doing? Paul says you're fulfilling the whole law. And now, where we're going to go now is, okay, how do we arrive to be able to do that? Because that should sound attractive to all of us, and I hope it does. Um, if it doesn't sound attractive to you, come and see me, please. Don't be ashamed to come and say, you know, you said this should sound attractive, and I have to say, I just kind of feel indifferent to it. Don't be ashamed to say that. If that's the truth, then that's the truth. And the best thing you could do is come forward with the truth. And please, let's get together and talk about that. Let's get to, I would actually love that. So please come and, and say, you know, about that. Let's talk. But this should sound attractive to us. This should be something that we desire and something that you want. How do we arrive at it? Verse 16, Paul says, I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. 
You see, in the first scenario, driving through the community, we can obey the law the whole time, just really desiring nothing more than to break it. We'd actually love, if you would, to go faster. But the speed limit sign is not allowing us to go faster. And here we're being told that if we walk by the Spirit, we won't gratify these powerful desires. And these desires are indeed powerful. Paul says in verse 17, the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit. The desires of the Spirit are against the flesh, for these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. If we are believers and we are truly united to Jesus in, uh, in faith, then the things we want to do are things that are pleasing to God. But yet we're not made perfect when we come to faith, are we? We're not made perfect, right? In one sense, we are made perfect. We're given the righteousness of Jesus. But in another sense, there's still a remnant of sin in our hearts, isn't there? Okay, and we have this battle. If, you, if, if, you're, if you're experiencing the battle, that's a good sign. If you're experiencing this battle, that's a great sign that you really are united to Jesus in faith. You know, it's the cartoons used to put it up with the angel on one side and the devil on the other. You remember that? Uh, that's, the, that's the battle, if you will. Um, if you're in that battle, that's wonderful. Verse 17 speaks of that battle. Then in verse 18, Paul says, if you're led by the Spirit, you're not under the law. Now notice there, Paul's talking about being led. In verse 16, he's talking about walking. Now, what's going on there? Walking, being led. Okay, walking is what we sometimes call Hebrewism. What is a Hebrewism? Take the ism off, you're left with Hebrew, right? Okay, it's a, it's a, it's a way that uh, the ancient Hebrews used to speak, and we find it all over the Old Testament. For, for example, the introduction to the psalm, Psalm 1, blessed is he who does not what? Walk according to the counsel of the wicked, if you will. Um, this idea of walking. What is this idea of walking? It's a lifestyle. It speaks of a lifestyle. It speaks of how your, your, your basic daily conduct is carried out, if you will. Um, this idea of walking. Okay, what about leading? Well, in case you're wondering, what is the connection between um, Exodus 14 and Galatians? You know, we were talking about in, 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 in Exodus 14, which we read earlier in the service, we saw that familiar story of of um, God delivering Israel out of Egypt. And as he's delivering Israel out of Egypt, I mean, at first, um, Pharaoh is happy to let, uh, Pharaoh and the Egyptians are happy to get Israel out of there. Get out of here, go. And off they go, and they march towards the Red Sea. Now, after a little while thinking about it, Pharaoh changes his mind, and he puts together one of the most powerful armies in the world at that time, and he begins to chase Israel down with his chariots and his horses and his men. And you can think about how frightening that is. Um, here, imagine we're ancient Israelites, and here we are marching, and now we got the sea in front of us, and we got one of the most powerful, if not the most powerful, army in the world at that time barreling down behind us. And we're told that the presence of the angel of the Lord who was in front of them, turns and comes to the rear to insulate them from this powerful army. Now, who is this angel of the Lord? I believe it's none other than the second person of the Trinity. But what is really interesting is we're told something else in that passage, that the pillar of cloud and pillar of fire by night also goes out from in front and comes to the rear. Now, who is that? Now, there's a number of scholars, and I think they're on to something here, who say that is the presence of the Holy Spirit. And I think that what this gives us is a really powerful image of what it looks like to be led by the Spirit. Because... After all, God protects Israel from that army, doesn't he? He causes the waters to split, and they walk across on dry ground. And, it's, and, and who's holding the army back while they do this? God's holding them back. And I, and I would say it's the second and third person of the Trinity that's holding them back. Are they going anywhere? No way. No way. 
As soon as they get all crossed, then, then God allows them to get into the seabed, if you will, but then he causes chaos, if you will, uh, confusion, if you will. Uh, their wheels of their chariots get clogged. Uh, they're under his judgment. And then what does he do? He judges them and they're destroyed. And from that point on, we find that this pillar of cloud by day and pillar of fire by night continues to lead Israel through the wilderness. And that gives us, I think, a powerful illustration of what it means to be led, if you will, by the Holy Spirit. Does that make sense? Now, maybe you're hearing this. How many are hearing that for the first time? Well, no one's raising their hand, so you all knew all this stuff, I guess. Or else <laughs> I'm losing you and you're thinking about changing the oil in your car or something. I don't know. I, sometimes that happens. I'm not, it happens to me when I'm trying to focus too. You know, don't, don't, um, it's all okay. Let's get back to Galatians here. Paul is talking about being led by the Spirit. He's also talking about walking by the Spirit. Now, if we are believers in Christ, then the Holy Spirit dwells in our hearts. There are no exceptions. If the Holy Spirit doesn't dwell in our hearts, we haven't come to saving faith yet. So if we're truly in Christ, there are no exceptions. If we're truly in Christ, we have the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit leads his people. Okay, so Paul is very fond of talking about what we in theology call the indicative and the imperative. What's that mean? Okay, the indicative describes who we are. It describes who we are. If you're, if you're a Christian, if you have been united to Jesus in saving faith, then what you are now is a human being who's been changed by the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit now dwells in your heart, if you will, to lead you. There are no exceptions. That is who you are. That's the indicative. That is explaining who you are. But there's also an imperative. What is an imperative? It's a charge or a command. What are we being charged with? We're being called to walk in accordance to the leading that the Holy Spirit is giving. Now, why do we need that? Why do we need that charge? Why do we need that call? Why do we need that command? Because it is possible for us to ignore his leading, isn't it? It is possible for us to, in fact, we can grieve him by ignoring his leading. And it's, it's, it's more than possible. It's something that we do from time to time, isn't it? If you've walked with Jesus for any length of time, then you should know what I'm talking about. Where very clearly, you can, you very clear, you know he's leading you, and yet you still go in a different direction. You know, it could be something as easy as sleeping in on Sunday morning where you wake up and you know, I mean, I, I need to get up and go to church. And you're, it's, it's his leading. If, if we're following him and assuming we're not working, some of us have to work on Sundays. And assuming we're not working and there's no other reason we couldn't come, if you're being led by the Holy Spirit, you're in worship on Sunday morning. That's where you are. But it's possible to ignore that leading, isn't it? But what Paul is saying here is walk by the Spirit, if you will. How do we do that? That's how we yield to his leading. We submit to his leading. Um, we, 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 we don't go and play sports Sunday, Sunday morning. Uh, we come to church. Um, that's just a practical example. We could give, I mean, all of us are a little different and our temptations are all different, but that's a practical example here. Now, if you look at verse 19 here, Paul's talking about works of the flesh. And he gives us a summary, if you will, of the works of the flesh. It's not exhaustive. I'll show you why we know that here in a moment. But I want to parse some of this out for you. Notice in verse 19, he says, the works of the flesh are evident. And then he gives this long list. There's 15 of them. I don't know if anybody counted them. There's 15 of them. I, I read that in a commentary a long time ago, and I thought, let me count and make sure it's true. There's 15 of them. Um, 15. And oftentimes commentators will divide these into four groups. And you'll notice the first group has to do with sexual sin. We have sexual immorality, impurity, and sensuality. And oftentimes that is the first. I haven't done the study to look and see. And sometimes these are referred to as vice lists, and there's a number of vice lists in the New Testament. And I, I haven't um, done a study to see if sexual immorality is always the first. I have a sense, I'm guessing, that it is. Uh, sexual immorality is something that is really thrown out there um, in many ways, it is especially 
uh, heinous in God's sight. And one of the reasons for it is because it has a tendency to really emotionally, it, it can get a grip on us emotionally, a grip that is exceptionally strong. You know, if you think in, in terms of same-sex unions, same-sex partners, and what have you, you know, um, Tammy and I over the years have ministered to a number of folks that would be in this category. You know, for them to come to saving faith in Christ means that they have to forsake that union. Um, and it's a powerful union. You know, let's, let's keep in mind, it's a very powerful union. And what makes this such a dangerous sin, if you will, and it is a sin, let's not, let's not get wishy-washy on this. The scriptures refer to it as sin, it's what it is. Um, you know, let's not get wishy-washy about it. Um, but at the same time, let's also recognize it's one sin amongst all kinds of other sins. We're all sinners, right? Am I the only one? I don't see a lot of heads going like this. I've never, you know, praise be to God, I've never struggled with that one. But I have a whole bunch of other ones, you know, that I have. And for them to break away from that, think about Imagine, we can start to put it in perspective, those of you who are married. Imagine having the decision. I mean, for you to come to Christ means you would have to nullify the relationship that you have with your spouse. You know, and, and that's why sexual immorality... And what is sexual immorality? Let's be really clear with the definition. Sexual, sexual immorality is any sexual conduct that happens apart from a marriage union between one man and one woman. It can be, and it doesn't just have to be physical, it can be virtual. There's so much of that going on now. Um, so that is sexual immorality. And the problem with it is it involves the emotions in such a way that it's very difficult to break free from. Um, you know, living together, um, all of these things would fall under that, um, that category. So we have these, the sexual immorality, notice impurity is next, sensuality. These three, three things would fall under the uh, category, if you will, of sexual sins. Impurity can be any uncleanness that would come upon us because of sin. But when it's parked next to uh, sexual misconduct, obviously it's, it's probably... Uh, being flavored with sexual misconduct, if you will. Um, what is meant by sensuality? That's when we just get rid of constraints. Yeah, there's no longer any constraints. and um, So we, that's our first category. Uh, the second category is, a, a, is often referred to as a religious category. Notice it says idolatry um, and sorcery. What is idolatry? That's the worship of anything other than God. But listen to this important caveat here. Anything other than God as God reveals himself in Scripture. Now, why do I say that? Well, because we could say, oh, I worship God. Okay, what God do you worship? Who is this God you worship? Is he the God who has revealed himself in Scripture? If you read the Old Testament, oftentimes God refers to himself as the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But more often than that, he refers to himself as Yahweh more than 6,000 times. More than 6,000 times. So make no mistake about it, he doesn't want to be confused with anybody else. And if we confuse him with somebody else, then what have we done? We have fabricated an idol in our hearts. The God that we're worshiping is not the true God. That's why you have to be a person of the book. How can we not? One thing that baffles me is, is people who preach every Sunday and don't teach the Word of God. How in the world are we ever going to learn these things if our noses aren't in the book at least once a week? In fact, it's fathoming me. I don't know how you're going to learn this if your nose is in the book only once a week. If our nose isn't in the book continually, uh, throughout the week. I don't know how we're going to get this. I really don't. Because we're bombarded with the opposite so much of the time, aren't we? Idolatry. I mean, we have to be on our guards. It isn't a, it isn't a matter of if we could fall into idolatry. We constantly do fall into idolatry. Idolatry is just, 
It's, it's when we worship and serve something that isn't God. And we can do this with anything. I read of a person becoming, he was, he had made ping pong an idol. I, I mean, if you can do that with ping pong, you can do it with anything, I think. I mean, ping pong's fun for a couple of minutes, but I can't imagine losing my family over ping pong. But it's possible. Why? Because we were created to worship. And if we don't worship God, we will worship something else. And it could be something like ping pong. I have nothing against ping pong. Don't think that I don't like ping pong. <laughs> I just wanted to make you laugh a little because this is a heavy, this is a heavy message. Um, and I really don't have anything. You're, where it's okay to play ping pong. Ping pong's not listed, okay? We're all good. Sorcery. Let's move on to sorcery. What is that? Interesting thing about sorcery is the word, you're going to recognize it. The word is pharmakeia. What does pharmakeia sound like? Pharmacy, doesn't it? And it's because we get the English word pharmacy from this word pharmakeia. What is pharmakeia? Pharmakeia was the use of poison or drugs, if you will, in religious practices or in the secret arts or the magic arts, if you will, that have been practiced throughout the ages and are practiced today. Uh, that's the origin of the word pharmacy, if you will. It's the dispensing of drugs, if you will, uh, for these secret arts. Um, but here we can see that this is something that would fall into the religion category, right? And that's our second category. Now, notice we come to our third category. It starts with enmity. And this is where Paul will give more. He'll give more terms in this category than any other. And I think it's because this is really what he's targeting um, with this paragraph. But he starts with enmity. What's enmity? That's human on human hatred. That's when humans hate other humans. Uh, that's enmity. Strife, I think we get. You know, it's any kind of uh, division, if you will, um, self-oriented bickering that erupts in quarrels. Um, we have um, um, jealousy, I think we've got that. When fits of anger, we've got that. Rivalries, I have a definition from Douglas Moo, would be selfish ambition. Self-oriented infighting among rival political parties. There's none of that going on, is there? Um, that would be rivalries. We have dissensions. Dissension is disagreement that leads to discord. You know, um, again, if we take our focus off the gospel, there's going to be discord between us. What's, what is that discord? It's going to be a lack of harmony. The Apostle Paul says to the Galatians, what happened to the blessing that you felt? For I would testify that at one time you would have gouged out your eyes and given them to me. Right? Um, choice, two choices. You want to, do we want to love each other so much that our love would be so sacrificial that we'd give each other our, our eyesight? Or do we want to live in a, in a, a congregation that's backfighting, backbiting and infighting and quarreling? I mean, it's a no-brainer, isn't it? And the beautiful thing is, as we keep a gospel focus, we're going to grow in that wonderful blessing, if you will. We're going to grow in it in this life only to go into the next life and live in it perfectly for all eternity. That's our future. If you're in Christ, that is your future. To be able to love people perfectly. I constantly pray. One of my constant prayers for myself is, Lord, I want to know how to love people better. I want to know how to love people properly. I want to know how to love people the way Christ loved people. I, 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 I offer that. That's one of the things I pray for all the time for myself. Why do I pray that? Because I see how miserably I fall short in this area. And, and I offer to. Maybe, some, maybe someone else in here could benefit from that as well. And if you would like me to keep you in prayer on those lines, let me know. Um, I got a few seats. You would be happy to welcome you to the club, okay? Um, but, but what's really wonderful is if you're in Christ, the day is going to come, and it's not that far away, where we're not going to need to pray that no more. Because we're going to be able to love everyone perfectly the way Jesus loves. Isn't that wonderful? It's the opposite of what Paul is describing here. He's describing divisions, Envy. You know, here we see this list. I mean, just look at this list. Um, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissension, divisions, envy. You know, one of these, this uh, idea of vision, divisions, I should say one thing about that. The word here, divisions, is describing when people divide into camps and form parties. That sometimes happens where factions uh, build up. That's what's in view there. 
Um, and then Paul goes into a fourth category um, there in verse 21. Uh, we have drunkenness, if you will, and orgies. Now, what is, what is all that about? This is, this is a sin of excess. You know, drunkenness obviously um, is having too much to drink to where we're intoxicated. We're now um, no longer in possession of our faculties the way uh, that we would have been in possession of our faculties had not this substance entered our bodies. And it could be alcohol, it could be drugs, it could be any of these, of these things. Um, one thing that needs to be said about this, though, is a lot of times in the church, drunkenness has been, has been decried by pastors who have left the pulpit and gone to the, um, the cookout afterwards and piled 3,000 calories on their plate for lunch. Okay, that is absolutely hypocritical. Because that's gluttony. And I used to say that gluttony is a cousin to drunkenness, but it's not a cousin. It's closer than that. It's, it's, a, it's, it's a twin sister. You know, sometimes we call food comfort food. What's up with that? We're asking food to do something that only God can do. You know? So it's just, it's not fun, is it? This isn't fun. Um, because it's going to convict us because every one of us is in this list somewhere. In fact, every one of us is in this list all over the place, isn't it? It's not just one little, oh, there's just one little thing that got me off. There's only one little thing that got me. You obviously didn't understand the rest of it, and you don't know anything about your heart uh, because we should be getting nailed with all of this, actually. I know I am. Now, what's the, 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 the last one, orgies there, and the... You know, in the mixed company that we have here this morning, I don't want to go into a lot of detail with that. I don't think I need to. But let me just say this. It's excessive feasting involving too much drinking with the possibility of uh, sinful sexual liberties. I think we get that, right? I don't think we need to go any further. Um, notice that Paul says afterwards, and things like these. Now, what does that tell us about the list? It tells us that the list isn't exhaustive. It tells us that many other things could be added to the list, right? It's important that we understand that. And we, would, we would be misusing this passage if we thought, okay, if I could just get rid of all of these things, that would be good. No, there's a whole bunch of other things could be added. That's great news, huh? Don't wrap up the sermon here, Rick. Keep going. <laughs> I'm not going to wrap it up here. Don't worry. We're going to keep going. Um, but there's something else that needs to be discussed here because this can cause, especially those of us who are especially sensitive, this can really put you in the tank. Notice that Paul says, I warn you as I warned you before that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Now, what does that mean? Does that mean that if, we have, if we're guilty of committing something on this list, that now the possibility of being a recipient of the kingdom of God and being a citizen of the kingdom of God is now past? And we can't belong. And the answer to that is no. If we, we can know that because how can we know that? Because there'd be nobody there. There would be no, there is no, there is no human being other than Jesus Christ and his humanity who has not been, um, who has not fallen to something on this list, right? We're all guilty and we've all fallen. Well, that's precisely why we need a savior. Okay, then what does it mean when Paul says, as I warned you, I warned you before that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Then what does it mean? There's a really helpful footnote. If you're looking at the um, church's Bible, it's an older revision that doesn't have this footnote, but some of you have some study Bibles out, I see, or you may have an ESV that's a little bit newer. And if you do, there's a footnote. And that footnote is really helpful down on the margin. It says, or who practice these kinds of things. Some of you will have that footnote. And that footnote is spot on because that's the, that is what Paul's going on about. All of us have committed these sins. It's one thing to commit these sins, then as the Holy Spirit convicts us of these sins, to repent of these things and to hate these things. It's another thing to walk in these things. The one who cannot... Him Herod, the kingdom of God, is the one who is not walking according to the Holy Spirit, but is walking according to the desires of the flesh. 
Walking is a lifestyle. Walking is something that we do habitually. Right? And that's what's meant here. That's what's meant here. As long as we're breathing here, we have salvation is being offered to us. Let's always remember that. And it's being offered to everybody around us. Let's always remember that. Sometimes you'll meet somebody who will say, I'm too far gone. I was reading an interview about three or four years ago, and it was an interview of a very famous musician. I'm not going to mention his name, but everyone in this room would know who he is. His wife is a Christian. And they were asking him questions about his wife's faith, and he was bragging about her. And then they said, well, what about you? And it brought a tear to my eye when he said, it's too late for me. It's too late. I don't have access to him, but I would love to tell him, it is not too late for you. But it soon will be. That's the beauty of the offer of grace, isn't it? Now, notice what Paul says, because we still haven't answered the question. This idea of love, love would lead us to drive through those communities the way we've talked about driving through those communities. And now that comes up in verse 22. If you look at verse 22 there, Paul says the fruit of the Spirit. Notice that, the fruit of the Spirit. What does that tell us right away? That tells us that what is going on next is something that isn't, we don't look inside of us to try to find this in our own hearts. It ain't there. If you want to look in your own heart and find something, you're going to find that back in verses 19, 20, and 21. That's what you'll find in your heart. Everywhere we're being told, look in your heart, you know, follow your heart, do this, do this. Okay, if you do that, you're going to be in verses 19, 20, and 21. If that sounds attractive to you, then that's good advice because that's where that's going to lead you. No, don't look at your heart. You need saved from your heart. Your heart's what's gotten you in all the trouble to begin with, and it's what's got me in all my trouble to begin with. No, Paul says the fruit of the Spirit. You see, this is not something we do. This is something God does. And that's what makes us such wonderful news is because he is 100% faithful to do this. We might wake up on Sunday morning not feeling like it, and oftentimes we do, but he doesn't wake up Sunday morning not feeling like it. In fact, he doesn't wake up at all because he's never asleep. He's never asleep at the wheel. So as soon as we read those words, we should be encouraged right away. The fruit of the Spirit, the fruit of the Spirit, something that the, something that the, that the Holy Spirit does. What is the first one on the list? I think it's interesting. The first one on the list is love. As that carries us back to verse 14, doesn't it? The whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But that also carries us back to the very end of verse 13. But through love, serve one another. Where are we going to get this love upon which we'll serve one another with? You don't have to look in your heart and work it up. Well, that's really good news because you're not going to get it there. It's a fruit of the Holy Spirit. It's something that is produced by God. This is why John in his first letter can say, listen, we can know that we've passed from death to life because we what? We love the brothers and sisters. Where did that love come from? Paul says in another place in Romans 5 or 6 that God has poured his love into our hearts, hasn't he? All the love that we would ever need to drive through that community the way I've described is available to everyone who is in Christ because it is produced not by ourselves. It's produced by the Holy Spirit. It's the fruit of the Spirit. This should be the best of news. This should be the most wonderful news. See, we're not talking about justification now. We're talking about Christian living, aren't we? We're talking about Christian living, and we're not free to live any way we want. No, actually, we've been freed for something much greater than that. We're being freed to live like Christ. That goes back to verse 13, right, where we started. See, I actually really did kind of have a plan for all of this. I know sometimes it seems like, what in the world is he doing? Sometimes it seems that way to me too, trust me. But we've been set free to become like Jesus. And we become like Jesus as we love each other sacrificially. Okay, that's great news until we start to think about where's the love coming from. It's a fruit of of the Holy Spirit produced in our hearts by God. We don't have to manufacture it. We can't manufacture it. But it's made available to us by God. We have love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. I think we get that. 
Paul says against such things there is no law. What does that mean? Well, I, I don't think, you know, that God's ever going to write a law that says, I don't want you to love no more. I don't want you to have joy no more. I mean, that might be the Victorian period, maybe. You're not allowed to have any fun. Heaven forbid you have any fun. Um, sometimes we think that that's what Christianity is, a place devoid of fun. That's not true, is it? And if people perceive that from us, we're the ones doing it, not God. We need to remember that, you know. Um, but having fun shouldn't be the most important thing. I hear this all the time, you know. Learning has to be fun. Learning has to be fun. You got to make it fun to be, you know, like playing music. You know, you got to get on some app that makes it fun. I don't know when that started. If you're going to master an instrument, you're going to have to work. It will not happen any other way. You're just going, I don't care who you are, you're going to have to work. Um, sermons are supposed to be fun. They're not always fun. Um, we got to get that out of our minds. We got to, we got to completely disconnect from that. If we're going to understand this book, there's a lot of times we're going to have to roll up our sleeves and we're going to have to sweat to understand this book. That's God's design. And that's the way it is in everything, isn't it? You know, no matter what you're going to, no matter what field you're in, no matter what you're going to do, if you're studying to be in anything, you're going to have to work at it, right? And life, if we train our children up to say, oh, we're going to make this fun, we're going to make this fun, we're going to make this fun, man, they're not going to be able to handle themselves when they get out in the world and discover, guess what? A lot of this isn't very fun. What happened? It used to be fun. Everything was fun. We all know better than that, don't we? Tomorrow's Monday, right? It's just in case I've anyone forgot. <laughs> Where are we at here? Huh? No. <laughs> no. Look at verse 24. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have what? Crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Yeah, that takes us back to Galatians 2, verse 20. You know, I've been crucified with Christ, and therefore I no longer live, but the life I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. That's a wonderful, and that takes us back to Romans 6, where we have that passage where we see that there's this sense that when Jesus died, he died for the joy that was set before him. What joy? Listen, if you're in Christ this morning, you are that joy. Jesus knows who are his and that joy, and there's a sense as, I mean, God is a great accountant. And there's a sense where when Jesus is, when Jesus is dying on the cross, whose sins is he dying for? We're going to look at this from the divine side, if you will, because it's wonderful to look at. Whose sins is he, is he dying for? The sins that we were committing and will commit. God's a wonderful accountant. He has every one of those. He knows all of them. They all have to, for, for him to sustain his righteousness and his holiness and his justice, every single one of those has to go to Jesus. Jesus has to take the penalty for every single one of those. So there is a sense where that old sinner, if you will, is crucified with Jesus when he dies on the cross. So we can say in one sense, if we're in Christ and we've been united to him, we're united to him in his, his crucifixion. It's important for us to understand that if we're going to get over addiction, that the old has died. And it no longer defines who we are. The old is past. That doesn't mean we can't fall. We do fall. We will fall. But it's not our identity any longer if you're in Christ. You're not Mr. Addicts no more. You're not Mrs. Addict no more. You're, you're a Christian. You're a believer. You're a son or a daughter in Christ. That's who you are now. And the whole thing is just catching up behaviorally to what God has done to us spiritually. So there's a sense where we are crucified with Jesus. And this is even better. Listen to this. When Jesus rises from the grave, we're also united to him in his new resurrection life. And that's where our new life comes from, isn't it? That's where new life comes from. 
That takes you right into the very heart of the gospel, doesn't it? You see, the, the cross has everything to do with that list in verses 19, 20, and 21. What is the answer to that? See, that's why if we stay focused on the gospel, we're going to grow in our relationship with each other. But as soon as we lose, as soon as we lose focus on the gospel, what's going to happen? We're going to go back to that old list. We're going to fall back in that old list. And the truth of the matter is nobody maintains 100% gospel focus in life. You know, if we wanted to draw lines, you know how I like diagrams. You know, if you're right here and we'll say, you know, the end of this life is up here where we're in, in, in faith, where we're in Christ, if you will. We don't, we don't travel a straight line, do we? If we wanted to graph that, we're up and we're down, and we're up and we're down, and we're up and we're down. And that's why it's so important for us to do what we're doing right now. It's, it's a fool's errand to think that we can grow in this without being together. That's a fool's errand. You don't grow. You just don't. If, if you're making a decision not to be a regular part of something like this, you've also made the decision not to grow. Because it's the same, it's the same decision. There's no way that we are going to stand up against the world, the flesh, and the devil without the means of grace that is coming from what we're doing right now. It just won't happen and it can't happen. I'm starting to sound like a preacher, I think. Verse 24, those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, notice this, Paul is now using the word live. And he also uses the word walk. If we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. That's a good place to stop when I come to chapter 6 next time. And, um, of course, as I talk about verses 19, 20, and 21, I include myself in those verses. You know that, don't you? I want everybody to always know that. Heavenly Father, we thank you and praise you, Father, for... Um, this wonderful text of Scripture that we've been working our way through very slowly. And we thank you, Father, from verses 13 onward that we see that we've been set free to become like you and that as we become like you, we'll, we'll be enslaved to loving one another. And we see that that love actually is love that is produced by you. And this just goes to show that, Lord, from start to finish, you are the Savior and you are the sanctifier. And we thank you, O oh Lord, uh, for this. And we pray, Father, that you would truly pour out uh, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control in our hearts, O oh Father, that we would um, walk uh, being led by the Holy Spirit, loving one another. In Jesus' name, amen.